0: Well, we're continuing this morning in our Matthew series, and if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we began our Matthew series. We started with verse 1. Uh, This morning, I'm going to start again in verse 1, and we're going to read through all the way to verse 17. If you would, read along with me. and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to to Babylon. (laughs) If somebody could collect those. (laughs) Thank you very much. And God, the father of the wind. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatiel, and Shatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for giving us your word. And this morning, we desire that your word have its intended effect upon each of our lives, that that we might be addressed by you, and we might come face-to-face with you through your word, that we might see, most of all, your Son, Jesus Christ, in your word, that he would be glorified and our lives would be transformed. Lord, please take this word this morning and bring it upon every heart, every soul, that life might come. We ask this in Jesus' name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord Lasts forever. Let's see if I can get this right. (laughs) In May of 1977, for those of you who are around my age, that date might be familiar to you, but in May of 1977, I sat in a movie theater watching the Star Wars saga as it began on the screen for the first time. The special effects were cool for 1977. As the movie began, these massive, giant letters scrolled across the screen, telling the story of Star Wars as its opening. And the very first words as those, those letters scrolled across the screen were this. Episode 4. Episode 4, which means something happened before, and that this episode was a continuation of a story that had begun long, long ago. Matthew's Gospel, in a similar way, is the next episode in a continuing story that began 2,000 years ago, 2,000 years earlier, as the... As the first book of the Old Testament, um, after the, the Old Testament, this is the first book. And these opening words continue the story that began in Genesis 1 with the calling of Abraham. It is the climax of the covenant promise that is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God made with David. This book, the beginning of this book, is is episode two. It's It's the climax. It's the coming of what God had promised. And so begins the story of the New Testament. But it's a genealogy that begins it. And a genealogy in my mind, is not a great way to begin a story. It, it doesn't provide a gripping read. You know, it's not the, the kind that you sit down and say, I can't wait to read a genealogy. It, it's not like, which I was reading this week as part of my devotional time. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress again. Pilgrim's Progress captures the reader's attention, even with, with its opening words. Bunyan writes. As I went through the wild waste of the world, I came to a place where there was a den and I lay down in it to sleep. And while I slept, I had a dream. And lo, I saw a man whose clothes were in rags and he stood with his face from his own house with a book in his hand and a great load on his back. I saw him read from the leaves of a book, and as he read, he wept and shook with fear. And then he let out a loud cry and said, what shall I do to save my soul? Now, who doesn't want to find out how that story goes and and how that story ends? Because it it is Christians' first steps towards the celestial city, the city of God. And even though Matthew's opening genealogy may not immediately come across as gripping like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, um, in this seemingly list of boring names, all behind it is God's plan of redemption. It's the fulfillment of God's covenant promise, and it's the display of God's unfathomable grace That will no longer remain in the shadows, but will be revealed in Jesus Christ. So behind this genealogy, this boring list of names, stands the climax of human history. Stands the the truth of God's covenant promise being fulfilled in Christ. Stands behind it, not in the shadows anymore, but, but God's grace revealed in his saving grace of Jesus Christ. And Matthew gets to all of this by telling us in verse 1, it all began with God's promises to Abraham and to David. And then he begins to recount, of all things, Jesus' heritage. He uses, he uses Jesus' genealogy to prove that Jesus comes from royal blood. To prove that Jesus is going to be the rightful king, is the rightful king, who is to sit on God's eternal throne. And so Matthew begins with this genealogy. He has a primarily Jewish audience. Most were illiterate. This would be a story that is read. So, so here you're hearing this story read that some could read, but they would have little access to the, testament, to the scriptures of, of the Old Testament. And so Matthew's story is being read. And these people are listening. And Matthew gets there by telling them Jesus' genealogy to prove that he comes from royal blood and that he truly is the fulfillment of God's promise, from Second Samuel 7:12, when God promised David, "There will be a king that comes from your bloodline, and that king will be a king forever. He will be the eternal king." and he will sit on the eternal throne. And that—that that is what this genealogy reminds us of. It's what it promises. And you have to understand, in Jewish culture, pedigree meant everything. It, it, it mattered greatly. When, when I was a kid growing up, and you know I'm, I'm Jewish by birth, and we would go to the synagogue, pedigree mattered. If a family could trace their line as far back as possible, that they were, they were part of the, the Levites. Literally, they got to sit in the front of the synagogue. Obviously, I was like a Benjamin or something, because I always sat in the back of the synagogue. But, but pedigree mattered. And pedigree matters here. Pedigree matters to these readers. They, they need to know who Jesus really is. And so Matthew keeps looking at records that are meant to ensure the family lines are who they say they are. Matthew's genealogy does just that. Matthew's genealogy validates Jesus' royal background. That's important to this Jewish audience. But that's not all Matthew does in this genealogy. Matthew pulls away the the curtain, he pulls away, he he gets away the shadows of what's behind this to reveal and show us how deep and how wide is God's mercy being put on display in the coming of Christ, in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, that that he has come to save us from sin and death. That That is what Matthew is trying to communicate behind this genealogy. And so let me give you a few facts about this genealogy. Some things that you need to know so you can understand it and see how it brings, brings application to your own life. And there, you look at this genealogy, you see three distinct phases. You see from Abraham to David, then you see David to the Babylonian exile, and then the Babylonian exile to the birth of Christ. Now, if you look carefully, you're going to discover, if you study this, this is actually not a complete genealogy. In fact, as you read and you count through the generations, in one of the generations you'll actually discover only 13 generations. And if you study even further and you dig a little deeper, you realize that, that Matthew didn't name every person in the line of David. A few were left out. Now, is that, is that critical to, to what Matthew is doing here? It's important to understand, but Matthew is just trying to be succinct, and he's trying to summarize. And and for whatever reason, the number fourteen was important to the Jewish culture, and so for Matthew to be able to connect these three phases, these these momentous occasions in in Christ's history, in Jewish history, fourteen generations. Will, will pique their interest, it will grab their attention, and so that's how Matthew begins. And, and commentators, scholars have tried to figure out for centuries uh, what Matthew is doing, and they haven't been able to, and that's okay. There are some mysteries in God we just don't understand. While not complete, though, with every name and every year accounted for over a 2,000-year period This genealogy does exactly what it is meant to do, what it's intended to do. It tells us how God's covenant promise comes to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew is intending. That's what Matthew wants you to understand. He wants you to read this, not as just a list of boring names, some that you can't pronounce, and just go, okay, God, I got through the, thank you, I got through the genealogy. Now let's get to the meat of the matter. Brothers and sisters, this is the meat of the matter. This is, this is the story of Christ. And you're going to see in a moment why. Because this, this genealogy, all right, we're just going to have to, how we're going to do this. There, don't move. This genealogy tells, it tells a stunning family history that reveals the story of God's saving grace coming through Jesus Christ in spite of one sinful generation after another. You see, every generation in Jesus' family line, every generation in this genealogy, in in Christ's family line, every generation is sinful, wicked, evil, evil, disloyal to God, idolatrous until Jesus comes in the flesh. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, sanctified bloodline that he has. He, he brings to an end the evil and unfaithful history of his family bloodline. You've got to grasp that for a moment. Matthew has just written about the history of the Savior. And in writing that history, he details from Abraham all the way to the birth of Christ, Jesus' family. And throughout that family, with with a, a smattering of a few righteous people, it is mostly wicked and evil. So the question is, what what does Matthew want us to do as a 21st century reader? What does he want us to do with this? What does he want us to learn from reading this genealogy? Well, he wants us to learn two things this morning. The first is, God's promises are always reliable. God's promises are always reliable. Matthew starts where we began last week. He reminds us of God's covenant promises to two men. And in spite of 2,000 years of sin and failure, his covenant promises don't go unfulfilled. They are fulfilled. Abraham, now think about Abraham. This is where he begins in verse 1. From the moment God made his covenant with Abraham, Jesus' family history was a mess. And I'm sure as you sit here, you think about your own family history. You think about your, your family history, where you came from. And you think about some of the the black sheep in your family. This is a history of black sheep. And from the moment God makes his covenant with Abraham, Jesus' family history is a mess. God and God makes in the midst of that, God makes a remarkable promise to Abraham, I will give you a son. I will bring nations from your seed and I will bless all people through you. And yet, after this spectacular promise to Abraham, after meeting with God, Abraham and Sarah decide to, because they're impatient, they come up with their own human solution to fulfill God's plan because God's plan seemed to take too long in coming. God promised a son. I'm 99 years old. It ain't happening. So, Sarah gives her maidservant to Abraham, Hagar, and said, you're going to have a son through her. And what consequences came from that? It was an abysmal failure. A man trying to complete God's plan. Still, Matthew reminds us that Abraham and Sarah could not mess up God's plan because he's always faithful to fulfill his promises and in his perfect time, his promise was fulfilled in the birth of Abraham's son, Isaac. God's promises are always reliable, even though they are often a long time in coming, which All of us have experienced. But that's not where he stops. He goes on to David. The messed up family failure continues because Abraham isn't the only one who failed so miserably. David's sin is incredibly wicked. He's supposed to be at war with his troops, but instead he's at home. And when he's at home, he's out on the roof one night and he sees this woman bathing. And he decides he wants her. And so he takes her into his home and he commits adultery with her and gets her pregnant. And then, out of fear, he has her husband killed. He's a murderer. He's an adulterer. And eventually, after marrying this woman, he has a son, Solomon, who is born. But Matthew, if you'll notice, he doesn't mention Bathsheba by name. This is such a sordid and wicked account. He simply says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Still, in all of this, God's sovereign purpose is to have an eternal king on the throne through David's line comes to pass in Jesus Christ because God's promises are always reliable. As we saw in Abraham, it took 14 generations before David came on the scene. And we see with David it took another 28 generations before Jesus is born. This genealogy, 2000 years in the making, seems so often that God's promises don't come fast. They just work so slowly, and it can often seem to us that it's the same way in our own lives that God works slowly. God doesn't work as quickly as we want him to, as we think we need him to. And we can even wonder at times, does he keep his promises? Is, is God really faithful to always keep his promises? Will, will my financial need be met when I need it? Will my child ever change? Will my physical sufferings always be with me? Will he really build this church and the gates of hell not prevail against it when we don't even have a place to meet indoors. It sure seems like winter's freezing might prevail. Matthew's lesson in this genealogy, brothers and sisters, is simple. We must learn to wait on God's promises and not take matters into our own hands like Abraham did. We must not insist or demand that God meet our request what we learn from this genealogy is that it is God's sufficient grace for the moment that keeps us going until his promises are fulfilled. Hebrews 10, 23, the author of Hebrews tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. And that confession That confession is Christ in us, the gospel. That confession is where we stand and say, God, who is promised, is always reliable. He's always faithful. His grace is sufficient for us every day you know, for many, many years. I don't know when this began. I don't know why I have it. It happens maybe once every three, four, five months. But I have this recurring dream slash nightmare. And all I can do, I can see myself, and I'm driving my car. And it's it's pouring rain. It's foggy. And, and the windshield is obscure, and I can't see anything. But I'm driving. and And I have this great fear that I... I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know if I'm going to hit something, and yet I keep driving, and and I'm trying to to see, and I cannot see. I can feel that way at times in my life. It's like God's got this plan, but I can't see ahead. It's obscured. It's dark, and no matter how hard I try, I just can't see that far down the road. And, that's, and that, to me, is just a reminder um, of how sufficient God's grace is. Because in my dream nightmare, I've never once had an accident. <laughs> and I don't know if, that's a, if I just wake up suddenly or suddenly everything opens up, but, but, but eventually it just it ends. And, and I haven't died in any of those dreams, still here. And so I just it just tells me, no, I won't crash. And even though I can't see ahead in my life, God's grace is sufficient for me, regardless of what my circumstances are. God's grace is sufficient. And the same question it can be asked through this genealogy. How, how can we see ahead when we start to read this genealogy? How can we see ahead? How could a Savior come from such a sinful bunch of failures? And how can that possibly lead ahead to God's promise being fulfilled? We know his promises are reliable, but how could they be reliable with such a sinful bunch of failures? I can't see past that. And Matthew, Matthew wisely, very carefully, in this genealogy says, oh, No, 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 let me, let me show you how to see ahead. And the second point is this. That Matthew is the lesson that Matthew is giving us is this. He says, Our sin can never stop God's purposes. God's promises are always reliable, and our sin can never stop God's purposes. No sin, no failure can ever stop God's purpose in our lives. Look look at the genealogy. Many many in Jesus's family background are stunningly wicked people and it begs the question, how can a savior come from this group of people? You you read in in verse 2, Abraham the father of Isaac. Abraham was a sinner. Abraham lied about his wife. He he said she's not my wife, she's my sister and so he gives her to another man and then He has he has a son with Hagar named Ishmael, and and what a what a problem that has caused. He didn't wait on God. I mean, Abraham is no in many things. He's no saint. And then and then we go on to see that the father uh, of um, Isaac is the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah Tamar. Who's Tamar? Well, Tamar was was Judah's daughter in law. And she was she was a Canaanite. So his son had wrongly married a Gentile. So there's just one part of this wicked history. And then the son of Judah dies. And so Judah promises Tamar so that the family line will continue. I'll give you one of my sons. He, she does, he doesn't do it. And so what does Tamar do? She goes to the temple. She dresses up as a temple prostitute. And she lures Judah, who again, sinfully goes in with a temple prostitute. He's a married man, and he, he is with this woman. She gets pregnant, and, and that's where you see these two brothers being born. Tamar, Jesus' family history. Oh, but it goes on. And then, then you have, from Tamar, you go Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Who's Rahab? Remember Jericho, right? Rahab the prostitute. A Gentile woman. Oh, and, and, and it just continues on. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Now, Ruth was, was an honorable woman, but her background, she's a Moabite. Now, Moab... Was, one, was the son that was born to one of Lot's daughters because Lot's daughters sinfully slept with their father because there was no one else around and they wanted to have children. And so the Moabites were considered the, the dogs of Israel. And and so here you've got Jesus having this background of Moabite. And then and then it just keeps going further. And David was the father of Solomon by not even naming Bathsheba, but by the wife of Uriah. Let's let's not even let's not even name her. How can a savior come from this group of people? Tamar Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. These are Jesus' great, great, great ancestors. All Gentiles, all with messy backgrounds, all a part of Jesus' history. Prostitutes, Gentiles. Seriously? I'm so glad my family history isn't written in a book that everybody reads But it gets worse. It gets worse. Because we then get on to phase two, the next 14 generations. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and on and on. Each of the names listed here in that 14 generations are the names of of kings in the line of David. All all these men are kings. And kings they were. Oh, but what a seriously mixed group. Most of them, in fact, only four of them were righteous kings. Most of them were wicked kings whose reigns were evil of idolatry and murder and infanticide and greed and disregard for God himself. So evil are these kings in this group that God's judgment falls on them. And as we read at the end of this section and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. The deportation to Babylon is God's judgment upon this nation because they have turned their, their back on God because they have sinned against God and God, God's patience did wear thin. God's anger was kindled and, and this group, these people were deported to live under another king a wicked king in Babylon. What a sinful and sordid history for sure. And yet, yet, brothers and sisters, here's what Matthew wants us to know. In all their sin and all its consequences, it does not stop God's purposes because his grace overcomes sin. God's plan to to redeem is not derailed by anyone's sin. And that message is still relevant to you and I today. Don't don't let your past sins paralyze you. Don't let your past sins condemn you. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Matthew's genealogy reminds us that God's grace is greater than our sin. Jesus, Jesus, our Savior has come. That, that's the wonderful of verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the prophet, the priest, and the king all rolled into one, the eternal one who will sit on the throne, he has come. And his gospel has freed all who believe in him, all who trust in him, freed them from the power of sin and its consequences because he took all their sin, all our sin, upon his shoulders and took them to the cross, was crucified, died on the cross, but he rose again. That is the genealogy of Jesus Christ because that is what is intended in its ultimate fulfillment down the road. When we sin, God promises that he will forgive us and he will cleanse us when we come to him in repentance. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His grace is greater than our sin. It offers us forgiveness and, and promises us that we will not be forsaken, but that God continues to work with us. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. In Philippians 1.6, Paul, Paul reminds these men and women, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That is the genealogy. God is bringing to completion what he began, because his promises are always reliable. He is always faithful. And our sin can never, ever stop God's purposes. The genealogy wonderfully ends with the birth of Christ. John tells us in his gospel that that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus, Jesus Christ. And Matthew's lesson here is simple. There's more grace in Jesus. Than there is sin in your heart. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in your heart. Romans 5:30 reminds us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. This, this is the message of the gospel. This, this genealogy is the story of sin abounding, but more importantly, grace abounding in Christ. 116 Jesus has come. And the failure and the unfaithfulness and the sin and the exile and everything in in his family history did not stop God's promise from being fulfilled. Listen, like Christian on the road to the celestial city, our our road in this life is is sometimes if not often arduous, but the city is always there awaiting our homecoming. And And that's because he who is faithful has promised. God has promised that we will make it home and we will get there. For where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Father, thank you that grace does abound all the more, that you are always faithful to your promises, even when they are a long time in coming. And Lord, we, we just ask now that you would help us to wait patiently, not to, to question your wisdom, but to wait upon your, your promise. And Lord, that we would, we would avail ourselves of your grace as we wait. And Lord, for where we have sinned and our our sin troubles us, may we confess it and experience the joy of the gospel through your forgiveness and your cleansing, that we would no longer feel condemned, that we we would no longer be accused, but that we could stand before you as your children, grateful and expectant of the promises that you have made. Lord, we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.